Good morning, Bridge. How are we doing, guys? Good. Good. So how many of you, how many of you text or social media? Can I see your hands? Just God bless that hand. God bless that hand. The rest of you. Wait, you know, it's the 21st century. Okay, come on. Just going to get with us. Let's do this thing. One of the cool things about texting is that, is, is that they've abbreviated it so much these days, you don't even have to type anything. All you can do is put little funny pictures on the screen and everybody knows what you're talking about. And you know what I mean? How many of you love emojis? How many hate emojis? Yeah, about the same number. I get it. I don't know if you know this or not. I just looked it up this week to see what was going on. But uh, there are now, according to the Unicode standard, believe it or not, there is such a thing as a Unicode standard for emojis. There are 2,666 registered emojis available to you now. There's even an Emojipedia, as in Wikipedia, that you can look it up because, quite frankly, some of you use them really badly. I saw on Facebook, uh, somebody said, well, you know, my pastor has discovered emojis, uh, uh, but he always uses them wrong. And then I panicked because I didn't know the name. And I thought, is that a bridge person? Is she talking about me? Because, uh, you know, sometimes we don't know. But, uh, but the simple truth is that, that we can. Some of the simple ones I use uh, all the time. For instance, if you're happy, you don't have to type, I am happy now. You can just put up a big smiley face and everybody knows you're happy, right? And if you're really, really happy, then you can, they've got another one for that. Can we say, there you go, I'm just really happy right now, you know? If you're really sad, you don't have to type, I am sad. You just put this emoji up there and everybody knows all oh, what's going on. And if you're really, really sad, then you got this one. You, you don't even have to show your face. Your heart is broken. You're really sad. Now, isn't that easier than typing it all out? Isn't that easier? Now, there's a problem, though, and that is that some of the things that we encounter on social media and text um, has a wide range of emotions to it. Am I right? They're not all one emotion. So sometimes you find yourself going, what do I do, put in 27 different emojis to explain how I'm feeling right now? Is that true? You ever been there? You ever experienced that one? Well, let me give you an example. See if you can figure this out, okay? We've got a picture of a puppy. What kind of emotions do you get when you see that little puppy? There's some awes, right? There's some, isn't that sweet? And then there's some who's thinking about uh, chewed up slippers. And some are thinking about the vet bills. You know, it's just all kinds of emotions that come from a puppy. So what do you do when something like, here, here's another one. Let's do this one. Uh, how about that one? What kind of emotions do you get from that one? You get the same kind of awe and that's sweet. And then you start thinking about dirty diapers at 3 o'clock in the morning and college bills. And so there's just a whole lot of emotions associated with, with that one as well. The bottom line is that we need a mechanism. We need a tool to help us when there are more than one emotion involved. And thank you, social media. You've solved our problem. You now have given us hashtag all the feels. You guys heard of that one? Hashtag all the feels. Go to Facebook and just search on hashtag all the feels. You will find a half a million posts that use hashtag all the feels. I'd never even heard of it until five or six weeks ago. But anyway, that's, that's what you do when you can't think of a single emoji. You just put in hashtag all the feels. So for the next five weeks, we're going to be in a series, and that's the only thing that applies. We're going to be talking about all the feels. We're going to be talking about the feelings that are common to us all, uh, and, and then we're going to find solutions in Scripture for every one of them. We're going to be talking about things like uh, depression, uh, and we're not necessarily talking about clinical depression, but those feelings of depressed, depressed feelings that we have from time to time. We're going to talk about resentment, which is a reality uh, when people hurt us. Regret is something that we all wrestle with. Can I get an amen in the house? disappointment, things don't work out the way we hoped they would. These are all feelings that we struggle with, we wrestle with. If you know somebody who's struggling with those, this would be a great series to bring them to because we're going to put it on the bottom shelf, but we're going to introduce them to Jesus in the process. Today, we're talking about an emotion that is just as common as the ones I just mentioned, but a picture is worth a thousand words. So let me just show you a picture of today's emotion, okay? Can we that was actually taken in a Home Depot in Baltimore, Maryland. Anybody ever feel that way? Anybody feeling that way right now? Just kind of uh, overloaded, overwhelmed. Here's the question. What do you do when you're feeling overwhelmed by life? Can, can we get common agreement here that we all feel overwhelmed sometimes? Do you hiss like this? This is just a... Uh, when you stop and think about it, it's no wonder that we do. I mean, think about it. We live in a culture, first of all, that's obsessed with going faster. Am I right? Well, we all kind of live in this. I mean, we buy products 
with names that indicate they're fast. Just We ship things with Federal Express. We have cell phone companies named Sprint. We manage our money in a thing called QuickBooks. We try to lose weight with something called Slim Fast, right? And some of you sickos even have bathing suits called Speedos. I don't want to see them, but you know you got them, right? You only wear them on vacation when you go abroad. That's the only time you... Right? Now, you add to our, our obsession with speed, with the complexities of life, and we're spinning so many plates. We've got so many things going on. We're constantly scrambling between family and work and kids and personal and spiritual and social life. Is that true? Is it true? I mean, if you're married, you know how hard it is to find time with your spouse these days, right? I mean, just to have a dinner together, that can be incredibly difficult. It can be a major production. And if you've got kids... Man alive with kids. There's school, there's homework, there's sports, there's extracurricular activities, there's their social life. How many feel more like, uh, like a shuttle service than a parent these days? Have you got any shuttle service people in the house? Just kind of what we deal with. And then you got work with projects and deadlines and bosses and work relationships. I read recently that the average manager in America has 36 hours worth of work on his or her desk at any given time. And they spend three hours a week on average just rearranging the piles. Anybody relate? And don't even get me started on spam emails and automated spam filters. You guys hate those as much as I do? Because, see, they're so bad at it, I have to go through my spam folder to see if they threw away something that I actually needed. So I end up wasting time going through this junk. I mean, it's just amazing, the stress that we go under. And so you've got your married life, your kid's life, your work life. How about your personal life? You have a personal life? Look at somebody and say, what's that? What was you know, a personal life? You know, we're talking about exercise. We're talking about hanging out with friends. We're talking about corresponding with distant friends. We're talking about relaxing. What was that? Relax? Are you kidding me? This is church. We have to talk about a spiritual life. I mean, where do you fit in and all of that stuff? Where do you fit in Quiet time. Where do you fit in worship time? Where do you fit in join a serve team? And, and, and I know you want to join a small group so God will still like you, but where do you find a time for joining a small group? I mean, come on. There's no time. After a while, we start thinking that fatigue is normal. That's just the way of life. And so we come up with expressions like, you know, if there were 26 hours in a day, I'd be fine. If there were eight days in a week, I'd be fine. Anybody relating yet? Anybody feeling overwhelmed yet? I'm not done yet. I'm going to add to that. Some of you guys have these, just these intense personalities that push. I mean, if you want to know who they are, they're the ones with their head down taking notes as hard and fast as they can right now. There's just some of those guys that just push and push and push. That's who we are. In fact, we set unreal standards for ourselves. And every week there's more things on our to-do list than can be to done no matter how hard we try to get them done, it's impossible. And then at the end of the week, we commiserate the things that didn't get done rather than celebrate the things that did get done. If you're married to her, do not throw any elbows. It will cost you if you do. You overwhelmed yet? I'm not done. Then there are the different stages of life. There's the married stage. There's the, the married with infant stage, the married with toddler stage, the married with teen stage. There's the adjusting to emptiness stage. There's the single parent stage for some of you. And I just go, I don't know how you pull it off, single moms, single dads. It's amazing how you get it all done. And we haven't even talked about the crises of life. In the midst of all of this stuff that's going on, uh, you break down on I-95 when you're in a hurry to get somewhere, right? You lost your job, and you don't know what to do about it. You got marriage problems, but you can't afford counseling because you got financial problems, and the kids are acting out because of the marriage problems that are there. And before you know it, you, you just, you know, then you got aging parents, and you ain't getting no younger yourself. And I mean, this just, come on, this is, and I, I, are you done yet, Jim? No, I'm not done yet. Then you got the inevitable insecurities that we all deal with. Hello, are you out there? I mean, we don't like to talk about that. It's too painful. But if we allow ourselves to slow down just a little bit, let's be honest, guys, that's a dragon we all have to slay in our lives. I'm talking about the need to be loved, the need to be affirmed, the need to be appreciated, or the pressure to please other people. 
around us. Add all of that stuff together, life and, and, and personality and crises and insecurities. No wonder we walk around feeling overloaded half the time. And if you think this is a depressing, depressing sermon, we'll talk about depression next week, but I ain't done yet. Because here's the biggest problem of them all. When we hear a sermon like this and we recognize, you know, this is a real problem. I probably should do something about it. And we start thinking about solutions. What is the solution to all the stuff that I just listed for you? I guess I need to cut back some, right? I need to just pare some things off of my schedule to free up some time. And if that's what you're thinking, I need you to hear me say, wrong, overwhelmed breath. That's not how it works. The, the solution is a lot deeper than that and sometimes a lot more painful than that. When we decide to cut back, understand, when we decide to cut back, <coughs> the, the next question becomes, well, which area do I cut back in? I mean, what, what do I cut back in? And so we kind of run through this list in our minds <coughs> of all the areas of our lives, potential cutbacks, and we say, well, you know, the marriage is okay. Uh, I guess I could ease up a little bit there. The kids are resilient. They're going to be fine. My friends will be loyal to me, even if I ignore them for a while. And if they're not, who needs them anyway? What kind of friends are they? And God loves me unconditionally, so I can neglect him, right? But there's a mortgage, and my boss is not going to cut me any slack. So I cut back. Hear me, guys. Lean into this. So I cut back in the safe areas in order to get out from under this feeling of overwhelmedness and damage the most important relationships in my life in the process. Eventually, we find ourselves hearing things from our spouse, like, I, I just don't feel like I know you anymore. Or our kids saying things like, why, why, why does daddy or, or mommy work so much? Or, hey, man, we used to hang out, watch a game. What happened? What's up? Before you know it, you go, man, how did, I, how did I get in this mess that I'm in? More importantly, how do I get out of it? How do I break free from this sense of feeling overwhelmed by life and the solutions I've come up with don't work? We'll talk again about depression next week. But for today, I want us to unpack this. Here's what I want you to remember for now, okay? Jesus gave us two very important promises. I'm going to share these scriptures with you, and then we're going to unpack this. Two very important promises. I want you to learn them, memorize them, put them on your refrigerator. Uh, you can go to the Bible app and pull them up and then print them out, whatever you need to do. Look them up in, in your favorite translation. But here's one of them, John 10, 10. I gave it to you in the NIV. Here we go. The thief only comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, who's the author of Overwhelmed? Satan is. I have come, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and that life to the full. Second passage, I like the way the message paraphrases it, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Imagine it now. Are you tired? This is Jesus saying to you, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned down on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to make a real, take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, Jesus said, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You see the two promises? I will give you fulfilling life and that life will be free and light, walking in the unforced rhythms of grace. God bless you. Thanks for coming to church. <laughs> so why is it so elusive? If we serve a God who keeps his promises, if we serve a God we can trust, if the word is true, why? Is this fulfilling life that's free and flowing? Why is it so elusive? I think the best way to answer that question is to go to the man who said, walk with me and I'll show you. 
<coughs> go to Jesus' life and pull out some life lessons from him because if anybody ever lived on the planet, just put it in human terms, if anybody ever lived on this planet and personified what we're talking about and hoping for and yet accomplished more than any human being that ever lived, it would be Jesus Christ himself. So well, let's go just a few minutes. Let's take a glimpse into Jesus' life, see if we can pull out some life lessons. It may not be that you need all five of the lessons I'm about to share with you. I needed all five of them. <clears throat> when I did this research in my own life several years ago and have renewed it and refreshed it to teach it from time to time, I needed all five. I need reminders in all five areas. Maybe you just need three out of five. I don't know. But what I'm going to ask you as we walk through these, I want, you to, I want you to ask yourself the question, be honest with yourself, how am I doing in that area? Is there a life lesson that I need to learn so that I can live the unforced rhythms of grace? Is that worth a few minutes of our time? Let's get into it. <clears throat> lesson number one from Jesus' life is I must recognize my value. I must recognize my value. That requires admitting to myself uh, and to God that I feel insecure sometimes. That, that, that I battle, no matter what I face, no matter how much I've accomplished in the past, or no matter what I'm facing in the future, I battle, you battle, all God's children battle what ifs. What if I don't have what it takes? What if I fail? What if they don't like me? What if this doesn't work out like I hope? We all battle what ifs. Going to get an amen in the room? Well, Jesus understood that part of the human condition. When he said, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about body identity. You know anybody? Don't look at them. But you know anybody that struggles with body identity? Body image identity? Yeah, it's a reality, guys. Particularly in a culture that puts up this unrealistic image all the time. I saw an interview with an actress not too long ago, and, uh, and she's apparently this pretty lady. I guess you can be the judge of that, but she's this pretty lady, and she had been on the cover of some magazine, and, uh, and they were asking her about her beauty secrets, and she said, I got to be honest with you. I was in the grocery store the other day, and I saw a rack of magazines, and, and I picked up one, and I said, man, that lady is gorgeous. And then I realized, that's me. <laughs> and she realized, sort of. They had airbrushed it. They had tweaked it. They'd done all kinds of stuff. She didn't recognize herself because it isn't real. But when you got that image thrown in your face all the time, there's bound to be some insecurities about body image. Can I get an amen in the house? Jesus went on to say, what, will, what are you worried about? What you're going to wear? We're talking about fashion consciousness. Anybody know anybody struggle with that one? You got a cockroach on your shirt or not, you know? Jesus said, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. They don't worry about the brand. This, by the way, <clears throat> is a new shirt. It's a Manhattan. Manhattan, give it to me. I wouldn't have had it. <laughs> Your heavenly Father feeds them, Jesus said. Are you not? That's the only thing you're going to remember from the whole message, isn't it? Yeah, Pastor Jim wore a Manhattan shirt today. Are you not much more valuable than they, Jesus said. What's he saying? Don't get wrapped around the axle about stuff that doesn't eternally matter. Instead, focus on this simple truth. You matter to God. You're more valuable to him than anything else in his creation. You were created in his image to be in relationship and to be recipients of his love. I can tell you guys, just be transparent with you this morning, I can tell you that I knew that truth in my mind for years before it ever reached my heart and started to define how I viewed myself in life. In fact, I didn't, it didn't reach my heart until I was in seminary and I learned something in seminary that had nothing to do with the books that I read or the papers that I wrote. It had to do with one of the men that I studied under. I had the, the incredible privilege of studying under Dr. Gordon Fee in seminary. Dr. Fee wrote 12 volumes on systematic theology. Uh, he wrote uh, 6 million words, 9,000 pages. Dr. Fee spoke Hebrew and Greek fluently, read it, spoke it fluently. The man was... was 
no question, world-class Christian scholar, a consummate gentleman, late in life. He's still living, but dementia has, has stolen that brilliant Brian, uh, brain of his. But late in life, he was interviewed, and I saw that interview, uh, and the question was asked, Dr. Fee, of all the things you have learned in your whole life, what's the most important thing? And without hesitation, Dr. Fee said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I thought of this man with all of his credentials and all of his degrees and of all of his accomplishments and all of his writings and all of his intellect can sum it down to that, then maybe it's true for me too. And I know some of you have heard preachers say many times over the years that God loves you. And you, yeah, that's cool. But it really change anything. What you need to understand that when it finally does get from your head to your heart, it changes everything. I mean, for me, uh, it hasn't been that many years ago that it finally hit me. God loves me whether I accomplish anything or not. And, when, and, and because that's true, I don't have to feel overwhelmed by the stuff that life is throwing at me. I don't have to perform for anybody anymore. I don't have to be good enough or handsome enough or smart enough or dress well enough because I'm loved. <laughs> you, you see, guys, if you don't get anything else, i got to move on, but I need you to get this. God loves by a different set of rules than the culture we live in does. God never says, we, we say things like, I love you because, oh, I love you because you're so beautiful. I love you because the way you make me feel. I love you because you're so smart. I love you because, and God never says, I love you because. He just says, I love you, period. If there's a, if there's a because in God's, it's because of who he is, not because of who we are. You understand, when you say that to somebody, I love you because you're so pretty, the question that goes through them because of human insecurities, the question that will go through their mind eventually is, will you love me when I'm not as pretty as I am now? I love you because you got an A. Well, will you love me when I get a C? As the insecurities begin to overwhelm us until you understand that God loves you, Period. You're the most valuable creation in his creation. Guys, when I got that, when it finally hit me, uh, everything changed for me. Because until that day, my whole sense of self-esteem rose and fell by how many showed up in church on Sunday. And if it was a bigger number than last week, I'm doing good. And if it was a smaller number than last week, I'm in the dumps for a week, hoping it gets bigger next week. My whole sense of self-esteem rose and fell on how you responded to my sermon or the people that I was preaching with. Did, did the lights come on? Did they go, oh, man, that's good? Did they come to me and say, Pastor Jim, you got a microphone in my living room? I mean, until I got it, I lived on those things. And I still value those things. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm not defined by them anymore. I said to the staff of our church just recently in an all-staff meeting that we have once a month doing some teaching, I said, guys, uh, you know, we do a lot of stuff around here, but please tell me I've not spent the last 45 years of my life counting cash, chairs, and cars. There's got to be more to it than that. And there is. There's this God who loves us supremely. Man, I wish I had the whole day just to talk about that one, but I hope you're getting it because you're going to continue to feel overwhelmed with life until it clicks. I matter to the God of the universe, no matter what. <laughs> Second life lesson that Jesus gave us is I've got to realize I can't meet every need. I, I cannot meet every need that I'm presented with. The, the the, the reality is that for many of us, that's huge. For me, it was huge. Maybe it's because I grew up in a world where the pastor is supposed to touch every life and meet every need. I'm not sure exactly where it came from. I've got some ideas, but I don't have time to unpack them right now. Uh, but I did have this need that I, I needed to meet every need that I was presented with personally. If it is to be, it is up to me. That was my motto in life. I'm not going to pretend I've arrived. I've sorted all this one out, but but i got to tell you, Jesus ultimately helped me to sort through the fallacy of that thinking. Matthew 26, 
7 through 11, while Jesus was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, Why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you. You will always have the poor among you, Jesus said, but you will not always have me. Now, I need to be sure you understand something. It took me years to understand what Jesus was saying there. Jesus' statement does not mean it's, in, it's okay to ignore the needs of the poor. Can I get an amen? That's not what he's saying. It's not okay to ignore the needs of the poor around us. It does mean that there are going to be times in our lives when we're going to be presented with more than one valid need and we're going to have to choose which one we meet. And if you haven't dealt with that reality in your life, if you're still playing the game of I got to meet every need, you're going to be overwhelmed with life. I learned this one the hard way as well many years ago, but still, I was pastoring in Chesapeake, Virginia, and uh, the church had grown to about a thousand, and I was still the only one providing pastoral care, because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I grew up in small town, North Carolina, pastor does all the pastoral care, visits all the hospitals, does all that stuff, and so that's what I'm supposed to do. Well, I got a call from a lady one Sunday, and she said, Pastor, I'm, uh, I'm having gallbladder surgery on Friday morning. Can you come by and pray with me before surgery? I said, of course, I'd be glad to. So I made arrangements. On Thursday night, before her Friday morning uh, uh, surgery, I got a call from uh, a member of our volunteer team who said, Pastor Jim, my dad just went to the cardiologist. They've discovered some major blockages. He's going into open heart surgery tomorrow morning. He may not survive the surgery, and he doesn't know Jesus. I believe if you'll come pray with him before the surgery, he'll get saved. Well, what do I do now? I got two different people in two different hospitals at the same time. And so I'm about to walk out the door. This is in the 90s, days before cell phones. I'm about to walk out the door to the house. Uh, I got the, our children's pastor to go visit the lady with gallbladder surgery, told her I would come by and see her later in the day. I'm going to see the guy with heart surgery. I'm about to walk out the door. And the phone rang, and a family in our church daughter had committed suicide during the night. What do you do now? I got in my car and I went straight to the family that lost their daughter and I sat with them for a while, but in all honesty, the whole time I'm talking to them and trying to minister to them, I'm looking at my watch because I know what time Leo's going into surgery and I got to get there in time. And so I'm going, oh man, just, you know. And so I said, I'm really sorry to do this, guys, but I'm going to have to run. I got to go pray with somebody at Norfolk General Hospital. I'll be back in, in a little while. I'll stop by and see you this afternoon. I'm so sorry for your loss. And I prayed with him and I left. I got in the car and I took off for the hospital knowing I was running a few minutes late and I got stopped by one of Portsmouth's finest officers. He got to the door of my, I kid you not, he got to the door of my car and I have my driver's license and registration up holding it. I said, sir, if you have to write me a ticket, could you write it really fast? <laughs> Because I'm on my, serious, I'm on my way to the hospital to pray with a guy who might not make it and I really need to go. He said, you're a pastor? I said, yes, sir. He said, you got ID? Yes, sir. I showed him my pastor's ID. He said, okay, I'll let you go, but you have to obey the speed limit the rest of the way. Oh, no, please don't make me do that. I get there just in time. I pray with the guy. He commits his life to Christ, and it turned out to be a real deal. He survived the surgery and, and came to the church for several years before he finally passed, and it turned out to be a really good thing. But then I ran back by the other hospital to see the lady that gallbladder surgery. She was in recovery, so groggy she didn't remember me coming. She's convinced I lied to her. took two years to heal that relationship. She got mad left the church, finally came back. I did her funeral. I mean, it's just... And then went back to the couple that lost their daughter and tried my best to minister to them. And then here's the clincher. I fell into the bed that night on a Friday night, utterly exhausted, totally overwhelmed, knowing I had failed all three of them, and I hadn't done adequate preparation to preach to a thousand people that Sunday. 
Something got to change. Something got to change. Well, maybe my story is different from yours, but I got a feeling from the head nods that some of you are relating. You see, the, the second best day of my life was the day I resigned as the general manager of the universe. <laughs> and I call it the second best day because the best day was day two when it didn't fall apart after I resigned. <laughs> Some of you need to write out your resignation before you get home today. Here's what God showed me. He put me on my face that day, and he showed me, Jim, you are limiting how many people this church can reach by the size of your ego. Because if you can't touch them, I can't send them, and their needs won't get met. That was a huge thing for me. And I told you, I haven't worked it. I'd still rather touch everybody. I would love to know all of your names. It embarrasses me to no end to meet you and say, I don't think we've met yet. And you say, well, actually, we met last Sunday. You just forgot. Oh, I'm sorry. I would love to be able to do that. But we got Pastor Andy, and we got small group leaders, and we got all kinds of capable people in this church who do it better than I do. So why do I have to do it unless it is my sense of it is to be. It is up to me. Maybe that's one you need to work on. I don't know. If not, maybe the third one is one you need to work on. And that is, um, I must be who God made me to be. I must be who God made me to be. So many people define uh, who they are in life based on what other people expect from them. Hello? I mean, they're, they're, rather than stopping and saying, okay, God, why did you make me? What did you put me on this planet for? You made me on purpose, with a purpose. What's that purpose? And how am I supposed to live that purpose out? They're constantly being pulled and tugged by the people around them who say this is what you ought to be. Jeremiah 29, 11 is the truth. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You can put your own name in there if you want to. It's appropriate for I know the plans I have for you, Jim, George, Mike, Gary, Sally, Sue, whatever your name is. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Psalm 139, all the days of my life were written in his book while I was still in my mother's womb. Some of you will not be free from a sense of feeling overwhelmed by life until you finally settle why God put you on this planet, what you're called to do, and how you're called to do it. That's a journey. I'm planning to start a small group later this year that's specifically designed to help you process through all of that. Um, and I hope you'll consider being a part of that when it comes around. Jesus modeled for this one, this one for us too. Matthew 19, 13, and 14. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You see, you see what's going on here? I, you know, we all talk about the, the, the children and how Jesus loved the children and, and received the children. That's great. That's a wonderful part of the story. But there's a deeper dynamic going on here, and that is that Jesus did not allow even his own disciples to set his priorities for him. He set his priorities based on what he knew God put him, the Father sent him to earth to do, and he chose his priorities accordingly. I can tell you now that I settled very young in life what God put me on this planet to do. He called me to preach. He called me to be a pastor preacher. I started pastoring when I was 19 years old, which is crazy, but I did. That's true. And that's why, you know, when I tell you I've been in ministry 40, soon be 47 years, uh, I was six when I started. So, you know, it's just, no, I was 19 when I started pastoring. But the journey of how I was supposed to do this was a very long journey for me. My first sermon, I went to my pastor and said, I think I might be called to preach. How do you know? We talked for about two or three hours, and, and I don't remember what he said. Uh, at the end of it, though, he said, well, there's one way to find out. Preach for me Sunday. And I went, uh, can you give me a little more time? I was 17 at the time. 
He said, yeah, I'll give you a couple of weeks, and, uh, and we'll pick a night, and you do it. And so, sure enough, he gave me three weeks to, to, uh, to practice, to write it and practice. And, and it was a Sunday night service at our church in Bladenboro, and, and I worked that thing. Man, I preached that thing on tree stumps. I preached it in the mirror. You know, <laughs> I preached that sermon a hundred times, uh, and I went and preached. And I asked my pastor if he would critique the message afterwards. Could we meet after the service and then you critique it? And, and here's what he said. He, I remember this conversation vividly. He said, well, you had a good outline. You had really clear illustrations. Um, but the people want power. The people are looking for dynamic. And I went, what does that mean? What, what, is, what does dynamic look like? And it sent me on a journey uh, for, to find dynamic. And I went looking. I went searching uh, all the way around me. And it's, you know, kind of first, the first step in that journey was this idea that people began to tell me it doesn't really matter what you say. It just matters how you say it. Right? I was in preaching class at Heritage Bible College. Farrell and I both went to Heritage. And... Uh, uh, and I'm in class one day, and the professor was late for class, and I being a class clown, which surprises all of you I know, uh, I got up to the podium while we're waiting for Dr. Carter to arrive, and I said, guys, it doesn't matter what you say, it matters how you say it. Turn in your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 4. And I started preaching. And the sons of Judah, Perez, Hezron, and Carmi, and Hur, and Shobal, and Rial, and the son of Shobal began Jahath, and Jahath begat Jehumai. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and I realized nobody was laughing. Because Dr. Carter was standing in the door. <laughs> and I crawled back to my desk. In time, I began to realize, he helped me to realize, that what you say does matter. And my, you know, pendulums don't swing from one extreme to balance. They swing one extreme to the other extreme. And so I went from, it does matter what, what you preach. And so content became everything. And I started preaching on sermons like, like the theological implications of Babylonian pottery shards in modern theological thought. Then I went looking for a preacher that had both, content and dynamic. And, of course, Dr. Carter, uh, Dr. Herbert Carter has been my mentor through the years. And, uh, and so I started studying Dr. Carter. Some of you know Dr. Carter. He's in his 80s now. But uh, Dr. Carter uh, always wore a suit and tie when he preached. And, uh, and he, he would put his hand in the outside coat pocket of his suit. And after a few minutes, he would reach up and he would rub his earlobe. And then he would rub the bottom of his nose and then he would go back to his coat pocket. I mean, I, just, I watched him do this, and I studied this stuff. And so what I do when I preach, I would get to where I, I wore a suit and tie, and I put my hand in my pocket, and I would do this. And it didn't matter what I was saying. I just had to get the mannerisms down. You know? And then I began to pay, pay attention to what Dr. Carter was saying. And, and then, those of you that know Dr. Carter, he was probably the most eloquent preacher I've ever known personally. I would say God created the world. Dr. Carter would say in that amazing voice, and God flung with the prestigious digit of his right hand the diamonds we call stars against the black velvet of the night sky. I tried that. And I added this. And everybody laughed at me. <laughs> that wasn't it either. After a while, I was so confused, I didn't know what to do, so Kim and I left the country. We just left. We just... <laughs> We went to the Philippines where they didn't know us, you know. <laughs> and so here's the cool part. Here's the cool part of the story. Uh, we came home from the Philippines to start Community Church in Chesapeake, and, and, and God just spoke into my spirit, you know, I made you on purpose, with a purpose. Why don't you just be yourself? I'm not a public speaker. I'm not. I, I'm scared to death every time I ever stand on this stage. I never sleep all through Saturday nights. I'm terrified. I, I'm a conversationalist. 
And so I've got a face today, I have one every time I speak, that I'm carrying on a conversation with you. And every now and then I will find you in the lobby afterwards and I'll say, thank you for being my face today. I'm serious. Because I'm a conversationalist. I'm not a preacher or an orator or eloquent in any way. I said, you know what, I'm just going to be myself and see what happens. What am I saying? Guys, you got a choice. You, you got a choice. You can either let everyone else around you define what you do and how you do it, or you can stand before God on the final day and hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. But you can't have it both ways. You say, I'm never going to be held responsible for why I wasn't more like Pharaoh. I'm not. An amazing man of God. Best friend I've got in the world. I will never be held accountable for why I wasn't more like him. I will never be held accountable for why I wasn't more like Moses or Joshua or any of the biblical characters that we relate to. But I will be held accountable for one day for why weren't you more like who I made you to be? And when you finally get that, you finally get that, everything begins to change. If you want to get out from under being overwhelmed, feeling overwhelmed, you've got to first of all realize your value uh, to God. You've got to recognize you cannot meet every need, resign as the general manager of the universe, and you've got to be who God made you to be. Two more quickly. Number four, I've got to be refreshed by others. Yes, you can be refreshed by God in prayer. You can be refreshed by God in worship and, and in reading the Word. But God also uses His people to bring refreshment into our lives sometimes. And you see this principle in Jesus' life on earth over and over and over again. He invested time with the masses. He preached. He taught. He did miracles. He, 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 he counseled. did all kinds of things. But read the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'll see that He often pulled away to be with His closest friends. Mark, 20, uh, Mark 4, Matthew 26, Luke 9, over and over and over you see those illustrations of Jesus getting alone or getting alone with his closest friends during those difficult times. Hear me, guys. We all have people in our lives that come from two categories. Category one is people that every time you're with them, you pour into them. Category two is people that when you're with them, sometimes they pour into you. Am I right? Don't look at them, but you, you know what I'm talking about. And hear me, guys. When you find yourself with only category one people in your life, that everybody you spend time with is expecting you to pour into them, you're going to get overwhelmed eventually. You're going to run out eventually. You're going to get empty eventually. You need some people that speak into you, that pour into you, that speak life into you. It's one of the reasons that we're taking uh, small groups at this church to a whole new level later this year. You'll be hearing a lot more about it in the days ahead. For now, I want you to understand that, that those groups are designed to be places where we can build relationships that speak life into each other. Yeah, there are times when, when one member of the group or another might be in special need. We call them EGRs, extra grace required. But the truth is, in a small group, on any given night, any member of that group might be the EGR this week. And we speak into one another's life and we encourage one another. God created us to need each other. And so I'll say this and move on. If you don't prioritize healthy relationships that speak life into your life, you will beg for them when the inevitable crises of life come. Don't wait. If you want to live in the unforced rhythms of grace, you've got to recognize your value. You've got to realize you can't meet every need. You've got to be who God made you to be. You've got to allow yourself to be refreshed by others. And then finally, lesson five is I must rest. I mean, if I could post all of our calendars on these screens right now, we all know what we would see. We live incredibly busy lives, pulled in every 
direction. Hear me, guys. No matter how important that stuff is, God says in Exodus 20, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. If he who never gets tired rested on the seventh day, how much more do we need to rest on the seventh day? Guys, this is not one of the ten suggestions. It's one of the ten commandments. It's a pay me now or pay me later kind of thing. You can't go, 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 and not eventually wear out and feel overwhelmed by it all. Jesus himself knew that you got to say no to some things in order to say yes to rest. And if you don't hear anything else from me, hear these words. It's okay to say, I wish I could, but I can't. I'd love to help you. I can do this, but I can't do that. Healthy boundaries are a part of a healthy life in Christ. i got to close. So let me just be sure we're clear and we'll wrap this up. I just saw the clock. We're good. We're good. I promise. How do I stop feeling so overwhelmed? Go back to where we started, Matthew 11. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Jesus says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. Do life with me. And you will learn. You will learn how to live freely and lightly. Some of you have given your lives to Christ. You've made all the arrangements so if he were to come right now, you know that you'd join him in eternity in heaven. But you've never learned how to live freely while we're here. And Jesus wants me to say to you, come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Will you come? Let's pray. Father, you see us, you know us, you know what we wrestle with in life. You understand how powerful the pressures are. So I ask simply that you would speak very personally, very deeply to each one of us today. Help us to realize that that the answer to our insecurities, the answer to our feeling overwhelmed by life sometimes is not just to cut back on some stuff. It's to go to the root of the matter. Guys, will you pray this prayer with me? You can pray silently, pray aloud, but will you pray these life lessons back? Can we pray them together? Jesus, I don't just want to know you love me. I want to feel it. Jesus, help me to realize that I can't meet every need. I don't have to. Lord, help me to be who you made me to be. Fulfill your purposes in my life. No more, no less. Lord, help me to get out of solitary confinement and allow others to refresh me, speak life into my life, and remind me that rest is part of your law. In Jesus' name, Father, you know who's praying, you know what they're dealing with. 
pray healing over every one of us watching online here in this service. I pray healing and health and wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? The altars are open. Some of you need to pray with somebody before you leave here today. There's some stuff that God's spoken into your life. I believe it's deep in my heart. There's some things that God's spoken into your life. You need to come into a prayer of agreement with some folks. Don't leave this place. Come to the altar. Let them pray in agreement with you. First time guests, thanks so much for being with us today. I do hope the Lord has made himself real to you today. Stop by the VIP table and give them your Connect card. We've got a gift we want to give you. And I hope all of you will go on this journey between now and Palm Sunday. And let's learn how to deal with the emotions that are an inevitable part of life. Father, thank you for this group. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for what you're doing in all of us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Ushers are at the door. If you've got a dollar bill, drop it in and we'll bless somebody. Thanks for coming.